Hello and welcome to Business Leader Conversations, a new show where we'll be talking to interesting and inspirational figures from across the business world. Today we'll be talking to John Lashley, the founder of the Brooklyn Brownie Company, a business he set up in July 2019 with his then 12-year-old son Leo. The company has grown to represent much more than just a business to the pair since a family tragedy rocked their world just a week after it was set up. The Brooklyn Brownie Company has gone from strength to strength built upon this relationship of father and son. John is also a man of range, having worked on the CBB show in the Night Garden and has also appeared as the world's only Mr. T lookalike on Britain's Got Talent. Uh, we're very excited to be talking to John today. If you'd like to find out more about Business Leader, our print magazine or events network, visit us at businessleader.co.uk. John, uh, or the main dude, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. No, no, no. It's great. Really, really good to talk to you. Um, so, John, I, I kind of want to start from the early days, if possible. Um, obviously, we know, uh, you know, Brooklyn Brownie Company now, um, but we want to kind of start at the earlier years. Um, can you tell us about your experience growing up and, and did you have any interest in, in business from an early age? Not really. I mean, from an early age with my mother, she, 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 she made us all, not made us, but she encouraged us all to pick out our career goals from early ages. So at the age of four, I was laid out to be uh, an architectural engineer. I was supposed to change, you know, the uh, the landscape of the earth because apparently I couldn't bear children. So I was supposed to change the earth in that way. <laughs> that's how crazy mom was. That's how aspirational my mother is. So yeah, man, that's some heavy weight to put on a kid's shoulders. I was homeschooled for a very long time because my asthma. I still have terrible asthma. So um, from the age of seven, they kicked me out of school because I was a liability. That's America for you. And then they just provided me with uh, lecturers, professors, and things like that every day. They'd come to my my home and uh, lecture me for about two, three hours a day. Um, it was cool. One to one. I guess that's where I learned to just vibe with adults because, you know, from seven to 15 ish, when I was reintegrated back into high school and I was like a special high school for uh, the arts and gifted people. And uh, it was cool. It was a nice transition because every year I had to, when I got to middle school age, I think it was around 12 or 13, I had to go to normal high school for a week. It was like all the films. It was absolutely terrible. You know what I mean? I was I had no friends because I knew I had none of these people. So yeah, it was like knock the kid over, give him the shoulder bumps, all that stuff. And it was just stuff I didn't really need to deal with. But I think it helped me grow into the person I am today. You know what I mean? Dealing with all those obstacles, dealing with different people. And then finally finding my passion which wasn't as strict as engineering, which was computer graphics and visual effects. I absolutely loved it. In that art school, they allowed us to like thrive and it was a new branch opening up in the school. And, and that's what I really dove into. You mentioned obviously your mother and how she was quite a strong driving force in your education and just your, you know, your, your kind of path growing up. Um, how important would you say that figure was in your life? She's a huge figure in all of our lives, in all of our business developments and educational developments and achievements. It was always a feeling of having to prove you, your worth to mom. And I thought that was just, you know, to us. It was, it was, it was a problem for us until uh, I think it was about eight years ago. I was reading an article by Sergey Brin, you know, Google's uh, one of Google's founders, where he, he mentioned that his dad sees him as a failure. <laughs> Because he didn't become a, a math professor. And I was like, it's just 
immigrant parents. They're crazy, man. I was just like, I can't deal with this. Uh, so with that, I was like, I'm done, man. You know what I mean? Come on. It's just, it's just, it's just in them. You know, you can't change them. All you can do is deal with them. But yeah, I've started to make our accomplishments and goals for myself and Leo uh, and for the family uh, instead of kind of going, you know, I got an A, mom. Why isn't it A plus? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's that type of situation. So, so you mentioned kind of, you know, you, you were leaning very much towards the creative arts. What was your kind of your journey kind of after after your, your kind of early education life? Could you just give us a little bit of a of a kind of run through um, mm. after, after that time? Being homeschooled uh, and having a, a push, push, push mom, I didn't really have much friends. You know, I couldn't really go out much because it will exacerbate my asthma and stuff like that. I was like, oh, man, I really wish I could do some stuff. And mom was like learn. Um, so I'm going to enroll you into night school and university because she found a loophole. <clears throat> um, and I was like, what? So 11 years old, I started going to night classes for art, uh, started with art and design. And uh, yeah, started doing that like one class a semester. And uh, it was kind of cool because when I, when I look back, she, she allowed us to skip a year of like real university when we got into it, you know, whatever university we, we, tr- we went to, all those credits transferred over. Instead of wasting time, you know, we were doing, we were working with uh, adults, we're seeing how older people work because in night classes, usually you get people up to 80 or so um, and you get kind of go-getters. You know what I mean? You don't have people who are trying to waste time. You have people who are coming there after work and they really want to do something. So it was a different class of people. Um, and they all kind of dug it. They were like, oh, this kid seems to be interested. Uh, and uh, mom really pushed that along with dad. dad. Dad's a very artsy dude. He's kind of a hippie. So the yin and yang of their relationship really worked well. Mom was business, business, business education. And dad was kind of like, let's see where you want to go and how your life wants to decide things for you and what makes you happy. After that, um, after high school and graduating there, I graduated early high school, went straight into NYIT, which is the home of computer graphics, and uh, studied there for th- a little under three years because I transferred all those credits over. I studied there, with, uh, I graduated with fine arts and computer graphics. Instantly after that, I moved on to NYU and uh, went there for about 18 months and uh, got my master's in science in digital imaging and design. And uh, my final semester, I made friends with one of the professors and I was able to work on a film, uh, which was kind of like groundbreaking at that time. It was just like, whoa, this this is the only dude who's working, not even done, you know, the the schooling yet. So I saw that I kind of had this really good knack in, I guess you could say, merging different technologies. Most people at that grad school level, they wanted to focus on things. They wanted to either focus on 3D or 2D. And there weren't that many people focusing on 2D. I loved 2D. I thought I was going to be a 3D uh, animator or whatever else, or a 3D modeler. But there was one professor the semester before I graduated who taught me 2D correctly, 2D compositing. I realized I could cheat, man. I could cheat all of my 3D stuff, which was, I would say, mid-range, and make it look film, film grade at that level at university. And every 3D class, I'd bring in my composited work, finished. And everybody was like, how are you doing this, John? What are you doing? What are you doing in the, in the 3D? How are you getting these renders? 
I'd be like, if you look at my render, it looks just like yours. It looks like garbage. But it's like I put it into a secondary package and then polish it. And they, they just didn't get it. Um, and that's what got me the work, you know, and uh, got me into being mid-range instead of like a, an assistant or a, a T-runner or something like that. I actually was paid and I came in as a, a mid-level artist. Along your journey, you ended up working at, at Ragdoll. Um, mm. They are, of course, the production company behind the CBB show in the Night Garden, which I'm sure many parents have been... Uh, haunted by um, <laughs> over the years. Thank you very yeah, much yeah. for that, by the way. Um, <laughs> you, you were you were kind of a, a, a lead creative, um, and then kind of you know, film production is obviously seen as quite a quite a high pressure job. Um, how did you find transition uh, to leadership in this field, um, especially when the, you know, were there any kind of particular lessons that you learned along the way that you kind of still use to this day? Yeah, I quickly learned a lot in that role. Um, we had a visual effects soup. I was brought on as, once again, a hybrid artist. It, it, at that point in time, there weren't that many hybrid artists. They they loved it. They loved the fact, once again, two-for-one deal. Um, they hired me on as the lead compositor on that role, and then I became the sole 3D artist uh, for all the 3D assets that needed to be built. Now, <laughs> this was a production that was executively produced by an individual who hates 3D. So I was the secret weapon <laughs> that um, they they kept pulling out of the bag. It was it was a nightmare because, you know, it, it, you're working with someone who, who adamantly hates what you do, and we daily had to trick them into oh yeah let's see you're one of your puppets and then the problem was later on somebody will spill the beans and he'd be 10 times angrier and then finally i had i was able to sit down with him one day and i explained to him bro i hate 3d um and he was like what and i was like i love physical things i love your puppets i love everything about that i was like why because i get all the magic in the camera it, it pretty much speeds up my workflow a million times all i have to do is clean up whatever mess you give me take out the poles or whatever else i was like building an exact replica of what you have and trying to mimic its movements trying to mimic its texture lighting conditions everything else is is crazy um i said and it's very costly and then when he realized that we were on the same page and i was like we just make these little 3d things for stunts you know what i mean for for the for the stuff you didn't get in camera that'll take Unfortunately, another team to get together and shoot day. I was like, it's cheaper for me just to knock it up. So then he started going, okay, this guy's just a, a pencil in my in my pencil case. And uh, he started to enjoy it. He'd come in and be like, hey, John, can we make the, you know, upsy-daisy pop out of the bed and have the flowers dancing with her? Because we didn't get that. And there's no way we could get the, the flowers dancing. And I was like, yeah, brother, let's do it. And uh, it became more of a team uh, of embellishing his magic instead of this guy's trying to ruin my my artistry. Uh, he just saw me as a some, an embellisher, which was cool because then we started vibing after that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, you know, kind of, we're all kind of the summer of our parts really uh we all learn lessons along the way and kind of pick up little things i mean even you know just chatting to you a little bit we, we already kind of see your your path kind of being plotted out in, into leadership i suppose part of that journey um it was, a, it was a bit of a bit of a far cry from your uh, film production days could you tell us about your rise to fame as the world's only mr t lookalike <laughs> oh my gosh uh, i actually started at ragdoll i attended a, a runner she was leaving uh Gemma, and she was having a 21st birthday and uh i was like oh cool i'll get her a present in my back of my head when she told me you know that's what you do and she was like oh no i'm having a big birthday party 
Uh, so I was like, okay, cool. Bring the present to the birthday party. And uh, then she sent out the invitations and she was like, it's an 80s fancy, fancy dress. I was like, I'm not five. <laughs> what, what is this? Like, is this a prank she got me to dress up? Nah. As you can see, I didn't really attend that many parties in my youth, man. It's <laughs> just like I had no clue. No toga parties at uni. I never had fun at uni. I was like, oh, cool. Okay, it's 80s. So I, I uh, started to grow my hair out. And everything else, people in the cabin, you know, ragdoll, they're like, thought I was looking like a hobo. But then um, they started to realize what I was doing. And they were like, oh, so as an artist, we're all competitive. So some of the other guys started growing their hair and stuff because they were going to come with something different. Uh, but we wouldn't let each other know what we were going to do. So that night, yeah, shaved up the day, that, that the night of and uh, dressed up as Mr. T. I look back at those pictures now and I laugh because it was absolute mess, plastic jewelry, everything else. And I went and, you know, it, it, it changed our lives and it was crazy. Uh, the, the We went to a club and the uh, owner of the club, he was really enamored by the whole situation. He just kept taking pictures of me the whole night. Oh my God, this is crazy. This is crazy. Can you take a picture with this person? And then there was a line of people who started just wanting a picture with Mr. T. And I was like, Ugh, okay. My wife's starting to get annoyed. Um, I'm starting to get a little bit annoyed because, you know, at that point in time, you're just a normal person going to a party, somebody's party. And uh, yeah, the guy at the other night is like, oh, can I have your phone number? The owner of the club. And I was like, dude, you've been taking pictures of me all night and you want my phone number now? And he was like, no, no, no. Look, man, I need your number and like your email address. I'm just going to send you all these pictures. Do what you want with them. But please go home and just Google the word lookalike. He sent them all the next day. Straight up, dude. And I just did that as casual as that. Lookalike in Google. Now 15 agencies popped up. I picked the top six and just grabbed all his photos, threw them into Google, and uh, emailed him, bulk emailed, you know, hi, there's a guy taking a ton of pictures of me. I apparently look kind of like Mr. T. The following week, was shooting a commercial for Asda, Drayton Manor, um, and so on and so forth. The crazy thing is those two gigs, if you want to talk about fate, this is fate. Um, I worked with half of the chip and doubles each time. So the first gig I worked with, the Will Smith lookalike, David Brent uh, lookalike, Simon Cowell lookalike, and then the following day, I worked with the... Um, David Beckham lookalike, Gordon Ramsay lookalike, and once again, Simon Cowell lookalike. So yeah, it was it was unique because then later on, a year later, we were on stage together at Britain's Got Talent. Uh, just before, obviously, we get to, to Brooklyn Brownie, um, you mm. worked as a lead creative on a freelance basis for, for quite a while, didn't you? Yeah. Um, did, did you feel like this gun-for-hire approach affected the way you were seen by the team that you were brought in to manage? Because it's not, you know, you, you're not the person who's there to kind of stick around. You're kind of temporary, fix the problems and kind of go. That must yeah. have been quite quite difficult, especially being in that leadership position. Did you, did you find that at all? Initially, I did. But the handy thing is about... I guess everything within my life, uh, even the whole entertainment side with the Mr. T stuff and the lookalike things and and meeting so many people. I was a very shy person. I'd say before that, I was someone who was a desk jockey who would, yes, I have to go into a meeting. I would articulate what I need to uh, and then and then go and do the task or whatever else very effectively. But being forced into out of your comfort zone and sometimes being thrust into a room of 50 people and going in cold, fully dressed in this costume, you know, because I'm not Mr. T, uh, and having to win them all over, and some of them not being drunk yet, because it's six o'clock, you know what I mean? It's not it's not the drinking time as of yet, and, uh, and doing effectively is, is tough. Doing all that, uh, me and the boys, the Chip and Doubles, we've always had this discussion, and we're like, if we haven't done this role, because they all have other jobs too, there's only two who are like full-time lookalikes, 
And like we would, we would suck at life. We wouldn't be able to sell ourselves as we do. We wouldn't be able to communicate as effectively uh, because we can go into rooms cold and just strike up conversations with half the room and then have a good amount of people turning around and wanting to talk to us and everything else. Being able to have that skill and go into businesses cold and be the hired gun and know that the team knows you're the highest paid person there. You're a temporary individual, um, but you are now running the show. It helped to have that skills or to have those skills uh, from a totally different side of life because you go into a room as an entertainer and you could read almost everyone's body language like that and you better do it quickly. Even the people that you know on first glance are not digging lookalikes, are not digging the, the dude who's, you know, in change and everything else. Who you can go and influence to bring you and introduce you to that individual where at the end of the night you're best friends and you're doing shots and it's just been training you know it was it was just training i'm like well yes i'm getting paid for this but i'm going to do exercise while i'm here i'm not here to enjoy myself so that's once again my whole task-based thing so being able to move those those social interactions and being able to win people over in a cold environment uh right over to the work uh, workplace really has worked effectively so now we kind of go from you know the the mr t lookalike um and the creative lead um, and transition to the to the main dude. Um, could you tell us about Brooklyn Brownie and how, how it came about and, you know, kind of your, your, your journey up to this point? It was uh, created, I guess, at 4 a.m. on a Sunday. Um, I was supposed to actually go into a studio that Monday morning, but I was really getting tired. <laughs> I was getting tired of the whole corporate deals and, uh, and everything. And I almost felt like, it was, I was being stifled at a point. I woke up one morning and I was like, hmm, beef jerky or brownies? <laughs> we love beef jerky, me and Leah. And, uh, and we, we also like brownies. And I was like, hmm. so bouncing around, bouncing around, around, writing down all the names, getting everything together, putting together Facebook. Both of them have Facebook pages and everything else. And I was like, I'll show this to Leah when I see him. And then in the morning showed it to him. He was like, go brownies. And then uh, he went back um, to his mom's. And then the following weekend uh, that I had him, it was really supposed to be guns blazing. Let's do this. And uh, this is how we're going to do everything. These are some of the uh, recipe ideas and the toppings. He was going to start implementing the ones that I'm not allergic to because I'm allergic to half the stock because it's nut-based. And yeah, everything changed uh, when I got a phone call around 5 o'clock after I picked him up uh, to um, that they couldn't find his mother. When you get a phone call like that, you're like, what? what are you talking about? You know, she must be at work. No, it's not a work day. Um, and his older brother got on the phone. He was like, because uh, it was the police that called initially. And he was just like, John, there's something off. Can't find mom. And her medic medication bag is missing. And I saw her before she left, and there was just something off. And I was like, Jordan, chill. There's, there's nothing wrong. Um, you know, because you're trying to calm down another child, even though the child is uh, a lot older. And I was like, oh. So hung up and I'm starting to do traces, you know, trying to find her phone and, you know, calling some of my friends. I'm like, oh, can you ping this? Um, and doing all my back, <laughs> back tour things from the amount of people I've met. Uh, there are a lot of um, very, very creative digital individuals. So they were like, no, can't find anything. And so I called back the police. They were like, yo, maybe you should call the cops back and say trace her credit card. So that's what they did by the time I contacted them and they found her um, and Unfortunately, they found her too late, um, but it was all planned. Um, she, you know, uh, Lane was a 
forensic psychiatric nurse. And, you know, I think she planned this for a while because she made sure I had Leo. It was that weekend. She had notes for everyone, even the paramedics who came, pretty much told them to do not resuscitate. She had, uh, and she explained to them all the medication that or the pills that she'd taken and everything else. She even, I think, had a letter to the coroner. She was a fantastic mental health nurse. And unfortunately, she did not have the support um, to help her you know, through what she was going through. And it's a sad, sad situation. Um, but when we were together, it, it was something that I didn't did realize very quickly because she'd come home after a shift of watching people deteriorate mentally. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, some people hung themselves that day. Some people self-harmed that day. And you just don't wash that stuff off. You know what I mean? But the thing is, there's no debrief. There's no debrief for people like this. And there's no debrief for police as well. You know what I mean? And it's insane when you're an outsider looking at this. You're like, there's no support. And these are some insane things they have to deal with. You know, it's it was just tough. And with that, I had to figure out how I was going to break it to Leo. And uh, we did. It was painful. It was hard. Uh, but something me and Leo always used to do was go into the gym and train. And it was crazy. From that day, we didn't really touch the gym again. We just didn't feel it. Because when we were in there, we didn't talk. We did the same thing guys do. It was just like, train, blah, 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 not really chat. And then afterwards, you're like, you good? You good? Yeah. We started building something. We started decorating brown we started getting orders and we we're like oh, we got to fulfill these orders so we started fulfilling the orders and as we were fulfilling them and doing these monotonous tasks without noise without house music you know like you do in a gym we'd open up and we start chatting to each other we start talking and it wasn't about everything you know the painful stuff but it was about daily things things that were on his mind how was this how was mom at that uh you know what did you guys do when i was this age and and things of that nature. So I quickly realized that we're opening up a lot more, just baking and decorating. Um, so this is what we're going to focus on. And we have, and just like working out, it shows results. And I guess our business results show how well we've been working out, you know, in such a short period of time. But in a way, not it, but in a way, it has helped us heal. It has helped us connect and it has helped us uh, grow as individuals, as father and son. That's so special that it can be a real uh, kind of building building point for you for you too. It's absolutely brilliant, and you know I, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit more about how the business has grown since it's launched, and um, has the pandemic kind of affected business at all, either positively or negatively? So the business has grown phenomenally uh, from since it's uh, started. Uh, we like to say it started with 50 bucks, uh, a mixing jug, a plastic mixing jug and a fork. And uh, now we have industrial mixers, ovens and so on and so forth. Uh, we changed our what used to be my editing room into packing rooms. We got flamethrower on the wall uh, and all our racks. And the kitchen is a commercial kitchen. It's all stainless steel. It's got the industrial mixers, uh, ovens and things of that nature. So, yes, we have upscaled. And we only did that because we couldn't find a, a dark kitchen. So first wave of the pandemic, when you went looking, Looking and hunting, you're like, oh, everybody was like, we, we can't sign anything now. We don't know what's going on. So we thought, well, okay, you don't know what's going on, but we know what's happening. We're getting an influx of orders and we need to start figuring out how we're going to do this because our pipeline is now set for small orders. You know what I mean? So every day we're getting more and more and more because people are just at home and they're ordering things. So we're like, geez, what are we going to do? I just said, you know what? Strip out the lower floor of the house. Let's make it commercial. 
we did a pause over a weekend and we had everyone in uh, from plumbers, tilers, everything else. Uh, and we had all the kit in the garage. And once they did their bits, we brought it all in and we were able to fire up cooking again Sunday evening. Um, so it was cool, man. We, we were able to do that. And uh, now we're cool. We're very happy with the pipeline we have and the equipment we have. And it's allowed us to bake, not comfortably, painfully we can get up to 10 10,000 brownies uh, a week. So when you say those numbers to large bakeries, they scratch their heads and they're kind of like, "What?" So I think that we are doing things correctly. We we're doing something right. But the thing again, once again, I've taken a production pipeline from a digital industry for years of doing that, creating those workflows for teams and brought it into our physical industry and taking everything that we have and figuring out how to get the most out of it modularly. If we were able to bring in a, a cost-effective element to upscale production uh, in any way. So the next element we're looking at is a depositor. That will allow us to inject into our molds a lot quicker. We'll be able to get the task done in 10 minutes. And I'm not even thinking about volume, but it'll give myself and Leo more chill out time. Um, and to me, that's that's gold. So obviously, you know, based on your previous career, um, you are an unashamed creative. Um, how, how creative do you find yourself getting with, uh, with the brownies? I saw Recently, you were messing around with, uh, I think, kimchi and chicken. Uh, yeah. How creative do you do you allow yourself to get in in the kitchen when you when you're making the brownies? Well, you're looking at a 13 year old and a and a man child, so we just kind of go crazy, man. We just we just have fun. Um, so yeah, we I never tried kimchi before, so we did it. And um, yeah, it was great. It was actually surprisingly good. And we finished every one of those brownies we did. We finished. There was also the pickle brownie, which a lot of people were like, uh, but when we did first bite, I was like, yeah, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> so we, we have the rest of the tape. We both finished those brownies. We're like, that was surprisingly good. Me and Leo, we do like being adventurous. We know for our customer market, we got the right brownie base. And that's the thing. You get the right brownie base, um, which is the basic brownie. And you could almost, almost put anything on it. And that's what we're trying to do now. We're trying to break it. And we're trying to figure out what will make it not taste as nice as it should. It's pretty tough, man. It's really, really tough. Because as you start chewing, you're like, whatever's on top, you're like, ugh. But you start chewing and you're like, oh, there we go. The sweetness, the chew, the texture's all there. Um, so with that, yeah, we're happy messing about, man. Yeah, no, that sounds brilliant. Um, so obviously, we, we chatted a little bit earlier about your your mother um, and your relationship with her. Um, so I kind of want to chat about your relationship with Leo a little bit. Obviously, you guys are business partners. Yes, he's thirteen, but he's still your business partner. Um, yeah. How have you taken your kind of relationship with him regarding his future? I mean, do you want him to stay in the business long term, or do you want him to kind of just let him make his own decision? How how, how are you playing that as a father? Oh, as a dad, um, I'm just so happy that the business has taken off in the way that it has, because I could see by the time he has to make that decision, um, it could be self-sustaining uh, to a point where we're not really in uh, general day-to-day -day operations. We're just uh, overseeing top level. And it'll be down to him what he wants to do. I just want this to be a vessel to fund whatever he would like to do. So if he wants to be a musician, learn how to play the didgeridoo and climb, climb Mount Everest and knock yourself out, kid, you know? But I do want him to get a degree. 
<laughs> but if he wants to, you know, go to uni and study AI, which is something he's really uh, huge into at the moment, go for it. You know what I mean? I just would like this to fund whatever lifestyle he wants. Or if he hits, you know, 16 or 17, he's like, hey, dad, I'm not going to college. We're doing this and we're doing it 10 times better. And I'll be like, go with it. Let's do it, baby. I do not want to push him or pigeonhole him into anything. Uh, anything creative or constructive, I'll help fund and we'll help fund and we'll get it done. I just want him to have as much happiness and contentment within his life as he can, you know, because for many, many years, I'd say 39 years, I was not really content. You know, uh, I look back at, at life and I kind of go, why didn't I do this sooner? But then again, if we would have done it sooner, I don't think we would have had the fire or the burning uh, energy and desire to make something work as we did. Because we were running away from a very painful day into trying to have as many good feelings and positive vibes as we possibly could. And uh, there have been quite a few people who have who've got, gotten in contact with us and they've been like, oh, what, what's, what, I want what you have. Uh, you know, and how did you get it? And oh my God, you guys are so lucky. And I'll say, never be jealous of someone else's success or what appears to be success because you don't know what drives them. And a hell of a lot of pain drives us uh, or drove us. Um, so, yeah, if we could strip back all of our success and have back, you know, Leo's mother, I'd take that in a second. So if we kind of fast forward 10 years time, um, obviously Leo's the main constant to kind of, you know, what you're going to do in the next in the next uh, chapter of business. Um but where, where would you see Brooklyn Brownie in, in 10 years' time? Um, is that something you want to scale to be quite large, or are you happy to keep it kind of uh, a smaller, more intimate business and that kind of connection with your son? Brooklyn Brownie, where it is right now, is um, we can achieve some really large uh, projects, to tell you the truth. Um, so that's pretty cool. But um, I do see it growing. I see it growing organically. And us having to to do something else. Our next step would either be a large scale factory where a lot more automation on the side of the baking and prepping, but there'll always have to be human hands to decorate, uh, which is awesome. We love that. We also have the ambulance, so that's going to be a different uh, vessel. And I've been chatting with different companies who are already saying, look, man, I could see you guys needing three or four of those things. In my head, I was like, yo, come on. We just bought this off a goof, and we, we were going to drive around. It's just, you know, Leo shooting T-shirts out of our T-shirt cannon. But, you know, it's all these things that we don't always fully think through. Um, but there are many things that we pick up. And uh, we don't realize that it could potentially be another income stream. Yes, we knew the band could be an income stream. But in all honesty, me and Leo want to just cruise around and meet some of our other baker friends all around the country in the van because we could like chill in the back as well. Kind of have a, a vlogging situation and studio within it because that's what's created in the back as well, the lighting rig and everything. I always like making sure that whatever we purchase has multi-purposes. It's not the truth, man. In 10 years... I just want to be closer with my son. I know he's going to be a heck of a lot bigger. He's not going to be the little dude anymore. He's going to be the slightly larger dude on all the packaging. Um, and uh, I just want us to be extremely happy, still be able to go vacationing together and have a, have a good bond, man. I can't get into the whole world domination and, you know, I see 10 million or whatever, or we flipped this business and now we're doing real estate or whatever else. No, because I don't know what's around the corner. You know what I mean? I could walk outside, get hit by a bus. I just want many, many years of contentment and happiness with my son because that's why this business was built. You know, I wanted to 
bond with him. I wanted to grow with him. And I just want uh, success and, and financial security and happiness. Yeah, no, that's that's such a special perspective to come at a business with. It's quite refreshing and, and, and brilliant. Thank you so much for your honesty for that. Um, so we do have a, a segment on the show where we ask business leaders to answer some of the internet's questions, okay? Mm, uh, yeah. Your question today comes from Reddit. Um, I'll just throw it on screen there. Um, how do you even start a business? As someone who started a business fairly recently, can you answer the internet's question? You try to find a gap in the market. And you f- fill it effectively. We could not find, for the life of us, a brownie that we were extremely happy with, at least here in the UK. I knew what I chewed up in the 80s. As a child, I was also allergic to chocolate. So that's the weird thing about this one. So allergic to chocolate. My mom used to make brownies. I used to steal them from the refrigerator, run upstairs to my room, chew them up, and have to spit them out. But that was burnt into my brain, the texture, the chew, the taste. Whenever I'd taste a brownie around wherever we were buying, little farmer's markets, whatever else, I was like, mm, it's just isn't right. So I had to explain to Leo, look, I'm looking for this brownie for the 80s. So he's like, all right, let's try making it. And uh, with that, we started doing it. So there was a huge gap in the market. There's also a huge gap in the market for New York pizza. If somebody wants to make pizza, there is a huge gap in the market. Because I've been traveling all over this country trying to find a decent New York pie and it ain't happening. So I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, Brooklyn Pizza Company coming soon, I think. Not happening. It's too much work. (laughs) (laughs) Way too much work. Yeah, no, that's it. Um, John, again, main dude, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Um, So if if anyone wants to kind of find out more about Brooklyn Brownie, how would would people get in touch with you? Uh, Anything. Brooklyn Brownie Co. Um, You know, we're on um, Twitter, uh, Facebook. Instagram. Instagram is one of our biggest platforms and ways to uh, talk to people. And you can also email us, check out our website, www.brooklynbrownieco.com. And I think now we're even on Clubhouse, so we pop in every once in a while to rooms and listen in. That's a very interesting platform. And uh, yeah, we're we're just us. That's the cool thing. I think that's what we believe in. And our followers or people who follow us on social media, they get us. And it's it's very nice and refreshing to actually finally be gotten i guess so uh yeah tune in you see us doing crazy things like roasting marshmallows with a flamethrower 